well, well. Fancy seeing you here. <laughs> Welcome to Rising. We've got another great show for you today. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. I like that one. Thank you. We'll keep that one in the bank. Maybe use it again. See if it uh, see if it pulls well. What's the news of the day? Well, Robbie, the foreign national who accuses President Joe Biden and his son Hunter of taking bribes in the possession of apparently damning audio recordings of his conversations with the Bidens. This, according to Senate Republican Chuck Grassley, who delivered the news on the floor yesterday evening. Let's watch. The 1023 produced to the House committee's redacted reference that the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. 17 such recordings. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden. According to the 1023, the foreign national possesses two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. Meanwhile, podcaster Joe Rogan recently went scorched earth on the Biden family, calling the president a corrupt career politician. Let's watch. All the f stuff with his son and the, the, the ties to Ukraine and China and the money, the family, they got, they got paid millions of dollars. And everyone's trying to obscure it because, well, better than Trump, better than Trump. If that guy was a Republican, they would be up his ass with a microscope. I know, it is unbelievable. But he represents the, the what they thought was a, like a sane alternative to what President Trump was. Yeah. They thought, this is insane, Donald Trump is the president, f that, anything's better than him. And so they went with this corrupt career politician. Yeah. I mean, it's wild stuff, man. They even got the FBI involved in telling Twitter to censor oh, the information about the laptop. It's crazy. So we have corrupt career politician yeah. versus corrupt non-career politician. Yeah, so first off, substantively, what do you make of the idea that there is this recording that's now come to light? We've talked in the past about how the specter of looming evidence that never comes through can have a political effect that isn't necessarily warranted and can be used to justify mm -hmm. other people's bad actions. Um, obviously, right now, we're talking about this in the context of Donald Trump, who's about to be imminently uh, yes. arraigned. Every episode must end with a cliffhanger that is never paid off. It's like Lost season three or something. <laughs> um, yeah, look, if such a recording is, uh, is persuasive evidence, great, let's hear it. Let's hear it. You know, it, it's not that it's not that anything being alleged here is fantastical, but because we do know that Hunter Biden was absolutely trading for influence, attempting to influence his father in exchange for, for money, jobs, et cetera. We know Hunter Biden is a corrupt individual, and we know that this investigation has taken forever and that uh, information about Hunter that comes to, to light was, in the most you know damning fact of all, was utterly suppressed at the behest of top law enforcement people, law enforcement people who are still in good standing who still go on cable news and pontificate about, you know, what should be the national security strategy, what should be, what level of surveillance we should be uh, forced to accept as Americans when they should be utterly discredited. So all of that is, is justifiably fishy. 
And it is true. Biden has been in Washington forever, forever. He's he's the careerist of the career politicians. Um, but we can't just keep uh, having Republican you know, members of Congress throwing around accusations and saying we have documents or, you know, someone knows something and we're just going to line things up. Oh, let's we have to have that happen. Yeah, I mean, especially in this moment, it does feel very um, convenient to be raising this issue when the leading candidate for the Republican nomination is recently indicted for the second time out of four expected uh, cases. So uh, it's not to say, I understand that people have feelings about the political nature of those pr prosecutions, sure. I, but very few people, even conservatives, are really contesting the substance of whether or not Donald Trump obstructed justice and inappropriately held on to classified materials. You can debate whether or not as many materials can be classified. You can and should debate the merits of the Espionage Act and, the, and its repeated use as a political tool, the inconsistency of prosecutions under the Espionage Act, all of that right. is true. But if the bottom line here is that we have two corporate parties and bad actors across the board who commit small crimes like mishandling documents and big crimes like starting wars um, and uh, having nepotistic relationships with their kids who can trade off of their name, which is something that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are alleged to have done, then what is the solution? And I do think that Moments like these really illustrate why it's so important to have robust alternative parties. You're a libertarian. I have historically voted green. Cornel West just jumped into this race. A lot of people across the ideological spectrum are excited about it, I think, exactly for this reason, because a lot of folks are tired of having to hold their nose and vote for candidates that you cannot argue mm -hmm. aren't corrupt and extremely insidery. Well, and I, I think a lot of people are probably sick of fighting over the, I, I don't want to trivialize, again, the, the wrongdoing here. It, it seems pretty extensive on, on Trump's behalf. But again, you know, no, no one is alleging that he turned over national security documents to a foreign power, to like actual espionage. He's being charged under the Espionage Act. But as uh, Alan Dershowitz pointed out in a great interview we did with him that's going to air right after this, you know, it's not, and, and then Trump is not the only one here. You, you brought up examples of people being prosecuted for under the Espionage Act. No, no one's suggesting they actually committed espionage. Um, these procedural crimes, these document-related crimes, I think a lot of people, myself included, I mean, these things are are dwarfed or should be dwarfed on a moral, on a philosophical level by um, American foreign policy and, and the cruelty and the death and the destruction caused by, by wars launched sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegitimately, but nobody goes after people for that. Um, yeah. No one is on trial. Trump, Biden, Obama, Bush, Clinton, none of them are on trial or have been on trial for disastrous regime change foreign policies that that killed um, thousands, if not millions, of people. Right, because then they'd all be in jail. Right. And, and I think that that so is the So we got to get Trump for you know mishandling boxes. Yeah, and, and I think that's the most vulnerable part of the Republicans' argument, which is that they, there seems to be a choice of selecting charges against Trump that would exclude other bad actors like Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Mike Pence. 
And, and so the, the choice to focus on the willfulness standard with Donald Trump and the obstruction of justice stuff, which the others did not do, in all fairness, and is a meaningful distinction, is not a meaningful distinction in terms of when you look at the law and who else has been prosecuted under the law. Mm -hmm. There have been—I I mentioned a Vietnamese-American who was put in jail for many years, might still be there, in fact, uh, for taking documents home from work so that he could get ahead of his work on the weekend. That is no allegation that he, you know, tried to give him to a foreign government, no allegation that he was, you know, especially reckless, any more reckless than Hillary Clinton and the private server and all of these kinds of things. But he did, in fact, go to jail. And there are, if you can look through the case law, a lot of inconsistencies between who goes to jail and who doesn't. And it tends to be higher profile government officials who get off. You know, people who are in, in the establishment versus low-level workers they make an, an, uh, an example of. Obviously, there's the example of Julian Assange as well, who was performing routine journalistic duties, was not the one that took the documents, and yet still is under threat from the Espionage Act. So I applaud the very few um, Congress members, I believe Rand Paul, who are support repealing the Espionage Act. But I do think that that should be the focus right now, if you don't want it to seem like your response to the political witch hunt mm -hmm. of, of Donald Trump is a political witch hunt in the other direction. And again, Republicans have fallen into this trap throughout the Trump presidency and then the subsequent Trump post-presidency of Trump still being involved in our national discourse of, of uh, and, and thankfully there are people like Rand Paul, like Thomas Massey, like a few others who are, who are much more principled, but so many other Republicans complaining about law enforcement going after Trump, but they all voted for, they all supported the laws that empowered that behavior. And they wanted and, it to happen to, to Hillary Clinton. Right. Donald Trump said during one of the debates in 20, uh, 2016 that if he won, he would apply, uh, he would get a special prosecutor to go after Hillary Clinton for her emails. Now mm -hmm. he's lamenting the application of a special pro prosecutor in this instance, calling it a witch hunt. The laws should, should be applied equally, so I understand the frustration that's not being applied equally, but also, you know, be up. don't shed too many tears for, for political, powerful, corrupt people. It, everyday Americans are also entrapped and entangled in this giant yes. mess of laws and law enforcement and deep state malfeasance, and we need to, we need to target it so that everyday Americans are protected from it. Um, we, we, let's not focus on it too much just because it involves Trump or Biden, etc. Yeah, absolutely. More rising right after this. President Trump will be arraigned in Florida today. That's the news that everybody is looking at today in the United States on 37 counts related to retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice, concealment, and making false statements. Our next guest has said while he's skeptical of the Department of Justice's motivations for charging Trump, he sees one piece of evidence that could prove damning for the former president. Joining us now is emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and author of Get Trump, Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz, welcome back to Rising. Well, thanks. I mean, we should be watching this on television instead of talking to me on television. The <laughs> Trump trial should be televised. Uh, American public should be able to see how our justice system operates. And we shouldn't be trying the former president and the man who's running for future president uh, in the dark. Well, Professor, before we get into some of those kind of hypocrisy issues, the political issues here, you said earlier in an inter earlier interview that you were surprised by how strong the indictment actually was. What do you see as the most damning aspects of it, and what parts do you think are potentially weaker? 
Well, the strongest part is clearly the tape recording, his own voice, in which he waves some material in front of somebody who has no classification. Uh, and he says, um, I shouldn't be showing you this. I could have declassified it. I didn't. Secret. Uh, it shows I win my case. Uh, you know, it may have been bluster, but um, it's out of his own mouth. You can't cross-examine it. And so that will be the hardest piece of evidence to overcome. Hmm. You know, speak to us a little bit about what you make of the Republican response to this, or response from so many Republicans talking about, you know, a weaponized justice system, um, the, the unfairness, you know, why, the, why, has, why has the Hunter Biden investigation taken so long? Right. Why was Hillary Clinton not charged, but Trump is? You know, that, what, what do you make of that response? And, and then also, I, I think the difficulty, you know, while I, I agree with a, a lot of what Republicans have said pointing all that out, then the difficulty becomes, but Trump could have, there's, I, I think we all kind of see that he could have easily avoided the situation by actually just giving back the documents at any of the times where he was asked to do so. So is it, it now maybe that, you know, shouldn't matter from the criminal perspective, but then it, it, I guess it becomes harder to say that, well, e even if he's being treated unfairly, he also kind of walked himself into the trap. All of that is correct. Um, I wrote an article the other day saying, what if both Trump and the Justice Department are guilty? Um, prosecutors have targeted Trump. Uh, the most uh, damning evidence of that, of course, is the New York case, where there's nothing to it. It's a made-up case completely. Uh, this case is a stronger case, but it results from a special prosecutor being appointed not to investigate the misuse of classified material in general, but to investigate only one person, Donald Trump. And then he walked into the trap and, uh, you know, he spoke to his lawyers in ways that raised serious questions. And then he had that interview on tape. So there's fault on both sides. The loser is the American public. Um, we lose when the system is weaponized against anybody. And we lose when the former president and man running to be future president uh, does things and says things that open him up to criminal uh, prosecution. So we're the big losers. And now Trump can't get a top tier lawyer because groups like Project 65 and other radical left wing groups are threatening lawyers saying, if you defend Donald Trump, we will file bar charges against you, as they have against uh, several lawyers, including me. Um, and um, it's McCarthyism. Uh, and if he can't get the top tier lawyers, then we're not seeing justice being done. In the article you just mentioned, you raise an interesting idea, which is not appointing special prosecutors for individuals, which can feel like political persecution, but instead for issue areas, for events like Iran-Contra Iran -Contra scandal, et cetera. If that were the case here, and there were a special prosecutor who was uh, tasked with looking into not just Trump's document case, but Mike Pence's, Hillary Clinton's, uh, uh, Joe Biden's, et cetera. How do you think those different cases would match up when compared in a one-to-one -one basis? There's been a lot of folks, especially on the left, who've distinguished Trump's case on the obstruction charge, which is pretty clear. Other people were asked to return the documents, and they did without complaint. Donald Trump 
moved boxes from room to room, was not, not forthcoming to the subpoenas, et cetera. And of course, as you mentioned, is now, um, you know, we now know on tape, knew he had documents that he wasn't supposed to have, was showing them to other people, et cetera. But in terms of the espionage charge, I wonder what you make of how Donald Trump's being treated here and the facts of his case compared to facts of some other people that I just mentioned in the political sphere, and also people, others uh, like Julian Assange, who have been charged under that espionage statute. Well, the espionage statute is misnamed. Um, the charges have nothing to do with espionage. There's no allegation that he turned anything over to another country or to enemies or, or uh, actually damaged national security. The Espionage Act should be changed to the Classified Material Act. Uh, there are people who have committed espionage. They're in jail today. Uh, he's not uh, charged with espionage. He's charged under a statute that's that's misnamed. Um, and he did some things that, that are wrong. But um, would he have been uh, charged? Would he have done these things if he hadn't been targeted? Um, you know, he is who he is, and he fights back. Uh, there's nothing wrong with not cooperating. Uh, under American law, you don't have to cooperate with prosecutors. But the question is, did he cross lines? And did he cross lines into criminal conduct? And that's what a court will have to determine. Professor Dershowitz, there is this obstruction of justice charge. So when you say it's not against the law to not cooperate, isn't that blurring the line between active obstruction and, and this idea of not being, you know, necessarily as compliant or making a, a, some kind of mistake? Well, there are three criteria. Number one, you can just not cooperate. Number two, you can do what I do as a lawyer, and that is uh, obstruct in every possible legal way. Claim the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, challenge everything. That's obstruction, but it's lawful obstruction. And then Did there's crossing the line into unlawful obstruction, and that's a matter of degree. Um, we'll see how the jury decides that case. That's the weakest of the cases, you know, moving boxes. He didn't destroy the boxes the way Richard Nixon destroyed evidence. He didn't bribe witnesses the way Richard Nixon bribed witnesses. It doesn't rise to the standard of the Richard Nixon case. But it may have crossed the lines into obstruction, but it's the weakest of the charges. I'm, I'm curious, Professor, are you familiar with the Nagia Fo case, uh, another espionage case? That was a, an employee, uh, a government employee who took uh, home documents so that he could work over the weekend and was charged and went to jail for many years. And there was no allegation in that case that he didn't comply with subpoenas, that he obstructed justice in any way, that he tried to hand them over to any foreign party, et cetera. And yet he still went to jail. And the, the question that's raised is, if that's the standard that people have been convicted under this Espionage Act, then why not Trump and why not Hillary Clinton? Why not uh, Mike Pence? Why not Joe Biden, et cetera? Because they're, they're all wrong. None of them should have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. There should be a—remember, uh, there are civil statutes that have to do with the Presidential Records Act. There should be a misdemeanor statute of taking classified material home um, inadvertently. Now, of course, they charged Trump not with negligence, as they did—as they thought about doing to Hillary Clinton. They charged him with willfulness. And so that's a more serious level of crime and also one that they're going to have a harder time proving. 
Where do you see this case um, headed in terms of, you know, what 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 is the expected um, time frame in which we'll actually get a trial? Is there going to be a plea deal before a verdict? Would you think? You know, we're wondering if if the, okay. What we're, we're we're not wondering is if there will be some kind of deal offered, whereas he doesn't run for president, and if that was the whole point of this, his enemies within the federal government and law enforcement and the media, what they're pushing for is really to stop him from running for. President. Well, if that was the case, it would be unconstitutional, improper, illegal. Uh, no, there won't be a plea deal. And if they offer him a plea deal, it would prove the point that this was all an effort to stop him from running. There won't be a plea deal. There'll be a trial. The trial may take place just before the election or just after the election, and that will be determined by the judge herself. Now, there's some people who want to disqualify this judge. That would be outrageous. Um, you can't pick your judge if you don't like the one that was selected from the wheel. So I think she'll preside over the trial and she'll decide the timing. The, some of the case, the, the facts that are being uh, levied against Donald Trump come from his own uh, legal representatives. That's, that's right. The attorney-client privilege rule has been uh, waived in this case, at least for the, the context of the indictment. We'll see if the evidence is later admissible in court. But on the basis that the attorneys were working in furtherance of a crime, which waives your protections there, you've spoken out against this, saying that it's an abridgment of a fundamental legal right and that we should all be concerned about. Isn't there a difference between communications about past crimes that attorneys are able to keep private and active work in furtherance of a future crime which is not protected by the attorney-client privilege? Absolutely. But the question is, did it cover what he said here? Um, uh, you know, I, over the 60 years I practiced law, people have asked me questions all the time. Wouldn't it be better if the evidence didn't exist? Wouldn't it be better if I escaped to Brazil? Wouldn't it be better, et cetera, et cetera? And I always say, no, it wouldn't be better. I'm not going to cooperate in that, and I'm not going to let you do that. Uh, I, I haven't seen enough to justify violation of the lawyer-client privilege in the broadest sense that it was done. Courts have upheld it. We'll see what happens in, 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 in Florida. Um, I think the ruling went way, way further than previous rulings on the crime fraud exception. But um, we'll wait and see, because that will be raised, obviously. Do you think things would be different if uh, we have yet to find out if uh, Joe Biden's prosecutor is going to raise charges for his document mishandling issues? From a, political, from a political perspective, would that be a game changer? It does seem like so much of the resistance to uh, what is going on with Trump is not based on the idea that he is free of wrongdoing. It seems pretty clear, as you've pointed to from the tape, that he did knowingly withhold documents that he knew were not supposed to be in his possession, um, the, these classified documents that were not supposed to be in his possession. Uh, if it were the case that Hillary Clinton were charged, whether under the negligence standard or the more willful, the higher willfulness standard, and or Joe Biden, what, what do you think the approach of conservatives and, and Trump-sympathetic people would be like in this moment? And is that an argument for going ahead and charging Biden, at least with the uh, negligence, with respect to his own documents? I don't think he'll be charged. Um, uh, he cooperated. Um, and uh, previous people haven't been charged. Uh, Hillary Clinton wasn't charged. Um, Sandy Berger was charged with a misdemeanor. Pence wasn't charged. I don't think we'll see any further charges on this. Uh, there are other investigations, obviously, of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and, and we'll see what happens uh, in those investigations. But um, 
people are entitled to look at this comparatively. And um, uh, let, let's let's just see. I have to get off now. I have another interview, but it's a pleasure talking to you. And uh, let's get back when things things move along. Okay. Thank you very much, Alan Dershowitz, author of Get Trump and Harvard Law Professor. Thank you. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and journalist Glenn Greenwald went head-to-head on Greenwald's show over RFK's now-deleted tweet praising Roger Waters. Here's a snippet of that exchange. If you live on any of these other countries, and you're gay, for example, you can be killed for that. Israel is the only place where you have freedom. If you're a transvestite, if you have other kind of dissonant views, you'd much rather be in Israel than I, any I, other I place. Get, I, I get that argument, in it, but it, go, go ahead, go ahead, you can finish. All right, well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, well, because, there, that, but, that, you know, Israel, it, you know, the, the um, and, and we, need, we need to have the same standard for judging Israel as we judge other Arab countries. We should, you know, and Israel, Israel is is going into the West Bank and killing children. Is never doing that deliberately. Never, and nobody has ever said it is. Well, a lot of people. A lot of people. A lot of people have said it. A lot of people have said it is. If you recall, RFK Jr. found himself in hot water after he first applauded the former Pink Floyd bassist for his stance on the coronavirus and his criticism of the war in Ukraine. But Rogers' pro-Palestinian position has not set well with supporters of Israel, leading the candidate to walk back his praise. And, of course, he didn't just walk back his praise. He uh, described Roger Waters' performances, his statement as anti-Semitic. He said that he um, uh, applied a different standard to Israel as opposed to other countries in the Middle East. And this back and forth, which I strongly recommend people watch in full, it was a really great interview. Glenn asked some really excellent, fair, but tough questions. Um, He really doubled down on that position, um, saying, as you heard in the clip, that Israel, uh, that other Arab countries intentionally kill Israeli children, whereas Israel never does the same. We heard Glenn push back, saying many people say that that is not, in fact, the case. Mm -hmm. Um, I think something like 50 uh, uh, Palestinian children have been killed in the course of this past year, including one just last week who was shot while in a car on a way to, I believe, a a family event, uh, shot next to his mother. You know, these are these are really disputed questions, and of course, the way that Roger Waters keeps framing these rankles this issue rankles rankles people precisely because it is an an echo of the kinds of talking points one frequently sees from an Israel lobby, whose interest, of course, is in maintaining the enormous amount, billions of dollars in funding that America sends to that country, while they, many people in Israel have a better standard of living in the United States. So Glenn went on to ask uh, RFK Jr. to distinguish his attitude toward Israel and the funding issues there from his attitude in Ukraine, saying, if you were to go around the United States and ask you know, not, you know, the question isn't who is better, the Israelis or the Palestinians. The question is, why are we in the United States transferring billions of dollars of aid each year to a country, Israel, whose citizens in many ways enjoy a higher standard of living than a lot of the ways American citizens live? What is your argument for why we should be sending so much money to Israel but not to Ukraine? And I think the controversy is that many viewers of this episode did not feel like RFK Jr.'s response really reckoned with the inconsistency between how he's treated. Did he really continue to endorse aid to Israel? 
Yeah. Yes. That's he says we have a, you know, the kind of narrative about how yeah. we have a special relationship. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the only place that you can live and not get killed if you're gay. Um, th th those right. kind of pat arguments, kind of ignoring I mean, the— I, I don't support foreign aid at all, and there are actually a lot of Republicans who, who don't either, who have spoken out, a, a, you know, who are not— um, certainly not coming at this from like a leftist perspective, but think it's perfectly conservative to advocate closing off aid to foreign countries, including um, Israel. Yeah, I was, I think you were just about to get to this. I, I was, it was interesting to hear RFK Jr. Um, make a defense of Israel that sounds to me like the same kind of defense that liberals generally make of the need to protect Ukraine. They do lead, you know, um, especially when they're, talking to their own tribe, they start with, like, yeah, Russia has a terrible record on LGBT rights. Yep. And like, that, that's the main—I mean, this is something that gets brought up a lot by a kind of—there's a kind of liberal neocon yeah. axis that wants to um, delegitimize criticisms of, of continued— uh, war kind of aid um, in general on a lot of issues in the Middle East. So that, well, oh, we have to, you know, well, they didn't recognize same-sex marriage there, so that necessitates— We can drop all these US bombs and right. take the oil, it's, yes. it's a very, um, It's a very similar yeah. argument, so— And Glenn um, said exactly that, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's really worth watching in full. Glenn, Glenn yeah. said many defenders of uh, our aid to Ukraine and our military support of Ukraine say that it is a democracy and Russia is an autocracy. How do you distinguish those arguments from the arguments you're making there? And, you know, RFK Jr., in all fairness, he did say repeatedly, I don't think any criticism of Israeli policy should be characterized as anti-Semitic. The right. problem is he then turned around and did seem to characterize very substantive criticism of, of Israeli policy. You know, Glenn Greenwald pointed to the fact that Israel has become a very conservative right-wing country of late uh, in terms of its leadership. Um, it's, you know, criticized the settlements, the the a lack of plausibility behind a two-state solution at this point because of Although these illegal settlements. Although said he supports a two-state solution, I believe. Right. But the left at this point is not. The, the issue is, and what Glenn was bringing up, is that it's become implausible because of all of these illegal Israeli settlements. There's the landmass is too settled, non-contiguous, non and at this point, people want there to be a one-state solution where Palestinians are treated equally under the law, which is in direct tension with the idea of there being an explicitly Israeli state. Is that state. what the Palestinians want? There's, I mean, there's self-determination, and there's a, it's mm -hmm. a mixed bag, but that is increasingly the move that people are going to as the two-state solution becomes untenable. And you the, say the, on the status left specifically. Yeah. Among many of RFK Jr. supporters, which is why this is such a contentious issue right now on the internet, and the and the the line that RFK Jr. specifically kept coming back to is, we have we cannot have a different standard for criticism of Israel versus criticism of some of these Arab nations, and while I would agree with that, I think it's one a claim that does not bear out. What is the evidence that Roger Waters or anybody else is not? happy to criticize a given Arab nation for its standards on human rights or women's rights or any of the like. But moreover, isn't there a question specifically about Israel because of the volume of U.S. aid to that particular country? And isn't what we're talking about with Ukraine and Israel and all of these countries is how much money America should be giving to support whatever is going on in those nations? Our ability or need to speak mm -hmm. on what happens in some random part of the world is really 
there's nothing there's nothing there unless it is the case that we are supporting what's going on there through our tax dollars, especially when there's so many people, as he's made the case for Ukraine funding, so many people domestically that could really use that money. Uh, and so it, it, it's something that he's going to have to continue to wrestle with. Eventually, I think he summed it up by saying, you're raising some good questions, Glenn, and we can move on. But I think it really does undermine a lot of people's confidence, not just in his attitude to Israel-Palestine, but the his understanding of what's going on in Ukraine. How, how consistent is he going to be when these issues continue to come up globally if he's not able to analogize the reasons why he sh objects to the funding in Ukraine to why he should potentially object to funding in other parts of the world? Yeah, for sure. It, it seems like a misread of the um, both from the left perspective and the kind of America first perspective that he, you know, to the extent he's trying to be a hybrid candidate that speaks to both, dis you know, disaffected populace of, on, on both sides, it's a, it's a populism on both sides that wants more, um, <laughs> more attention being paid to the problems at home, um, not because the problems in the rest of the world aren't serious, but because we have to be honest about our ability to to, to fix them in the way that we have and, and we have to reckon with all the ways some well-intentioned, some not well-intentioned efforts by the American government have made things worse, um, have led to really unsavory consequences. That's putting it delicately. So uh, maybe he'll reflect on that more after talking it out with Glenn. Yeah. And uh, we're actually going to have an interview with RFK Jr. later this week. So uh, you won't want to miss that. I'll have more details on it very soon. But it is on the books. More Rising right after this. Fox News is just not the same without Tucker Carlson. During his time at the network, before his show was abruptly pulled off the air, Carlson drew the largest number of viewers in the 25 to 54 age demographic, including the top number of Democrats in that group. The deadline reports that Fox News viewership is down 37% from May of last year. Now, in a new piece for The Spectator, columnist Chadwick Moore, who also has a book out called Tucker, coming this summer, uh, it poses the question, Tucker Carlson can live without Fox News, but can they live without him? Mm. Carlson reportedly said, I really do think the cable news business has a limited future two weeks after his firing from Fox News. Moore writes that Carlson gave his viewers something no one else could authenticity, because cable news and television at large is, quote, an inherently fake place. Carlson reportedly has said, quote, I see these clips of people on podcasts or taking video of themselves on Twitter. You can tell when someone's really telling the whole truth. It's obvious right away. Maybe I don't agree with the, the person, but I can see this person is not lying. You can tell when someone's lying to you or when someone's shading the truth or trying to spin you. And there's a lot of artifice in television. All right, so there, there are some statistics which would indicate that he is right about this. Uh, in fact, I saw a tweet from Mehdi Hassan of a Mediaite article pointing out that Friday, June 9th's numbers indicated that MSNBC is at the top of the ratings heap, uh, winning both the total day and primetime averages of total viewers in the key 25 to 54 age demographic. They had 1.46 million viewers on Friday, uh, compared to Fox, who was in second place with 1.28 million viewers, and CNN bringing up the rear with 700,010 viewers. Fox News is the five was still the top rated show on Friday with 2.5 million total viewers. So there are still, you know, Fox isn't 
dead and gone. It's still got the most popular yeah, show on TV. Yeah, I mean, TV. let's not be eulogizing the network too quickly here. Uh, Chadwick Moore, who's authored this um, Tucker biography, um, I, was, was upset that he's no longer, uh, he thinks he was kicked off Fox mm -hmm. basically for, I think, advocating on Tucker's behalf so much, mm -hmm. and also, you know, accusing Fox of malfeasance and how they got rid of Tucker. So I, I think there's a little bit of Grand sour salt. grapes sure. that he's not going to be able to be on the network anymore through choices he himself clearly made. Um, yeah, it, it is both, it is simultaneously true that Tucker was the biggest thing on Fox and was reaching an audience beyond their normal audience, was particularly popular with young people. Also, and then, then the clips of the things he'd say being posted on social media were viewed millions and millions and millions of more times beyond just the numbers he was doing on the network. Um, and, and there has been some, uh, uh, some cost cutting uh, going on at, at, at the network that I, I, don't, I mm. can't speak to. What is the cause of it? People wonder if it's the Dominion lawsuit, um, a program that I have been on uh, many times over the last know, like 10 years. Um, the uh, the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business, Kennedy, um, that program got cut mm. after years and years and years. I'm sad about that. She's mm. a very good friend of mine. But uh, so, so you know there there are there are issues, but. Um, the news cycle right now is very clearly very favorable, I think, to MSNBC mm -hmm. because you know, resistance libs are um, turning in. If anything, this shows kind of the short-sightedness of the CNN strategy, I mm -hmm. think, because Chris Lick was spending all that time trying to, uh, uh, during his tenure, um, re reacquaint the programming with a Republican audience. Right, when he um, should have just been pushing for an, a Trump indictment. Right, I guess, yeah, <laughs> I mean, should have been, uh, the people who are going to watch yeah. are anti-Trump resistance lib type people, and uh, maybe he's just alienating them without reaching a new audience and they're all going to MSNBC, which mm. is all MSNBC is, is, is screaming about Trump, and, is and bringing on all those kind of bulwark, sort of never Trump, Lincoln Project sure. people to be like, but this Robbie, is the end of days. Is this an argument that Fox News, if this is what people have an appetite to watch, should also be doing some coverage of the indictment of the, of well, the president? they are doing coverage of it. You haven't, it doesn't seem like an imbalance of focus? Well, I, I don't, I've been watching it um, all day. You know, I, I flip rapidly between uh, the three channels when sure. I am watching, which is not like every day, because sometimes you have to put this stuff down <laughs> and just like take a break and play Zelda for a thousand amen hours. Amen to that, brother. But, the Zelda uh, bit. Let me, let yeah, me there's ask been, you there's about... been coverage on the Brett Baer um, has covered it um, pretty relentlessly. Let me ask you about the the framing uh, Tucker Carlson offered up in that quote we read about one's ability to tell how truthful and sincere. Uh, commentators are outside of the traditional media sphere. Do you think that that's a that's a fair assessment that people who are not on TV are more transparent, or there's more of an ability to sense when they are being accurate and honest in their beliefs? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that's. Um, uh, I, I guess yeah. I see where that sentiment comes from because if it's a little less polished, um, sure. there's, there's less uh, shielding. There's less ephemera to distract you from the words that they're saying and the message. I mean, it's always the case when, if you have on a guest, if you're going to do like an argument and you bring on a guest, and this is true on TV, but honestly, it's probably true for us as well. The hosts have a lot of power to shape the conversation. We can cut off the person. We can, you know, we can, the deck is stacked in, in the host's favor. Uh, that's very true on television. Um, 
But I, I don't know. I, I mean, you think it's the, less the, true when there's podcasts that you can edit and TikToks yeah. that you selectively pick the narrative and the I mean, those things go those things go on and on forever. So the more time somebody's talking, um, if they're trying to like keep up their guard and only say things within a narrow range, um, eventually you just your your like mask slips because you have to keep talking and it goes on and yeah, on. Yeah, so on. this actually came that, up the on the Glenn Greenwald RFK Jr. Uh, interview last night. RFK yeah. Jr. was talking about how he feels like his uh, uncle JFK really benefited from television, which was a newly ubiquitous technology at the time. It favored RFK uh, JFK for reasons. He was handsome. He you know, um, and that he similarly feels like podcasts and kind of social media is an opportunity for him to get an edge as a relatively new technology, which is perhaps why he's doing so many um, alternative media shows. He says that Twitter was the same for Trump back in 2016. But he also, uh, Glenn piggybacked on that point and went on to say that because uh, Noam Chomsky has written about how the seven-minute news segment format of the news is very good for reinforcing the status quo view because it doesn't take very much time to say, yes, we should bomb Syria, blah, blah, blah. But it does take a lot longer to unwind what the preconceived um, kind of uh, Overton window accepted speech or thought is and then offer something new and justify and provide evidence for that, et cetera. And that podcast and longer form environment. Does that sound like a cope a little bit, like the bad the bad view is easy to explain shortly, but the good and correct view no, I, takes so long to explain, and that's why it's hard to get good ideas across. As you said, hosts have a lot of power to shape yeah. the conversation, and so if you're given a leading question and the hosts have an idea of the world, it comes it comes across very clearly. And for you to unwind, I mean, when I was, you know, obviously working for Bernie Sanders, you look at people asking you questions like, you know, why is Bernie too old to run and also a socialist and uh, you know uh, uh, also uh, got to mm -hmm. behead people? in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And now you have a minute and a half to answer all of that and disavow people of their preconceived notions about socialism, sure, the, put out the inconsistencies about how his age is being yeah. treated versus Joe Biden. And, and that takes Again, the, time Again, the work. length of the format is a massive boon to podcasts. Um, actually, my brother told me that, uh, this once. He listens to a lot of podcasts. He listens to Rogan and other things. Um, he works from home. Rogan's pandemic. a great example. Three-hour right. podcast. He, he listens to a lot of podcasts, and he doesn't he doesn't have a cable package. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't, when I'm on TV, he doesn't watch me. He happened to watch me because I, I, he was at our mom's house. And he texts me after. He's like, that's it? You talked for like 30 seconds. That's it? Yeah. That's what you went to New York for? Yeah. Like there and back for 30 seconds of talking? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it is a, you can have much more productive, lengthy, yes. substantive conversations for but, sure in podcasts. But I do want to say, that is, while all of that is very true, because of the perception of the honesty of independent media, I do think that it can, people, there's, a, there's a market, people know there's a market for it, and there's a lot of self-promotion on the lines of, I'm the real one, I'm the purest one, I'm the great, like, I'm the one that's really going to tell you the truth, I'm the most working class one, right. I'm the one that's closest to you. And sometimes someone having class solidarity with you and all of those things does reflect their political opinions, and sometimes it's a branding where you see people who are millionaires, arguably people like you know, Tucker Carlson, kind of affecting a, I'm the truthiest one here, and I'm, I'm a man of the people like you, even though it's really divorced from their own personal experience. So people's appetite mm -hmm. for that is being fed by podcasts, but it also it presents an opportunity for those who are, are not really authentic to ex exploit the veneer of authenticity that can come from saying, hey, I'm an independent medium. Mm -hmm. But it is true that the, the filters are off, 
the gatekeeping is off, yeah. and that's why they do they frustrate the mainstream media, yeah. which is losing, which is losing out to them in the long run. I For think. sure. More rising right after this. Decorated former combat veteran David Grush went public last week with claims that the U.S. has a decades-old UFO retrieval program. Grush also dropped the bombshell allegation that people have been killed by, quote, non-human intelligences. Here he is on News Nation. Let's watch. We're definitely not alone. Absolutely, the data points empirically that we're not alone, yeah. Do we have bodies? Do we have species of... What? Well, naturally, um, when you recover something that's either landed or crashed, um, sometimes you encounter um, dead pilots. And uh, believe it or not, as, fan as fantastical as that sounds, it's true. Hmm. Grush, who previously worked as a representative for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where his job was to help investigate UFOs, also said recently, quote, I think the logical fallacy there is because they're advanced, they're kind, we'll never really understand their full intent, and that's because we are not them. But I think what appears to be malevolent activity has happened. That's based on nuclear site probing activities and witness testimony. Grush went further, saying the U.S. would do anything, including killing people, in an effort to keep this secret. Mm. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by this. I don't mean to nerd out again, but this idea that we can perceive beings as malevolent because we don't understand their behavior is a core principle of Star Trek and why the Prime Directive is so important, the non-interference principle. An early episode with uh, this thing they called the crystalline entity, this thing was going around destroying planets, causing chaos, this big crystal rock-like thing in space, and they realized this happens a lot in Star Trek. Oh, it's just trying to feed. Oh, it's just trying to eat. Oh, it doesn't really realize what it's doing or the impact, impact it's having on other species. And it would be interesting to, to interrogate whether or not, I mean, this is also the doomsday scenario of so many sci-fi movies. An alien comes, a human overreacts, shoots them, et cetera, and now mm -hmm. we're in an intergalactic war. So there is something, I think, kind of satisfying and interesting about someone contemplating that it would be actually difficult to judge the intent of a, a, what, a, a UFO okay, or what are, what are the odds ET. Mm -hmm. we, we encounter or, or a, a, they come here to encounter us an alien or extra dimensional or extraterrestrial, a, a, a non-human intelligence, but that is like within the ballpark of our intelligence level. I, what, I, what I mean is like, they're interested in our nuclear stuff. Like, mm. like, like ants don't have any relationship to human beings. Like ants don't go about their lives thinking, what do the human beings think, right? We're, we're, we're they're as, pretty interested in our picnic having behavior. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, we're not perceivable to the ants. It's, it's, it, we're so different and distinct. But isn't that and kind of the it point? It will be like that with aliens. I think, I think that's exactly what we're saying. That me, we, me, me and Grosh is what we're talking about, is the idea that because ants don't perceive us, and we largely don't pay attention to ants, there are behaviors that we engage in that really have nothing to do with the ants but that are harmful to them. Let's say we build a condo and it digs up a anthill, right. and there are behaviors that they have that are at least irritating to us, if not harmful. There's fire ants and more dangerous kinds of ants. But it's not really about us. They're just protecting their territory or trying to come to their right. kitchen for snacks or, or whatever it is. So I, I think that's a really significant possibility. But this is, but no, but what is being suggested is, a similar level, oh, they have 
crafts that are, they're right, they're recognizably non-human, but we can kind of see that they're spaceships, they're interested in our nuclear secrets. That's like, uh, that, that's like encountering like another country or something, or, or a human species, like a similar Earth-like planet with similar, do you know what I mean? That's too close to like what our intelligence and interests and in how we do things is. Like an, a genuine alien present will be like, it might not even be perceptible to the human in, in the way that, you know, the, in the way that microscopic organisms are not perceptible to us. That's a, a That's, fascinating point, because Grish also weighed in on that. Um, this is from an, an article in New York Magazine that is a skeptic of Grush and has tabulated what it considers to be more of his outlandish claims. Uh, one of them says, he says, I don't want to necessarily denote origin. I don't think we have all the data to say, oh, they're coming from a certain location. He proposed the vehicles the Pentagon is hiding could have come from a different physical dimension as described right. in quantum mechanics saying, we know there are extra dimensions due to high energy particle collisions, et cetera, and there's a theoretical framework to explain that. It, it, does that does that help <laughs> does that help for you or does that make well, it worse? I, no, I think that's all possible, but I, that does not at all to me resemble what we're talking about when we're talking about flying objects people have seen and recovered pieces of ships and technology and weird glimpses of things in the desert or where where mm -hmm. else that that doesn't that is very different and thus i think largely a hoax and not true mm -hmm. when an actual alien presence will be like will be as as different to us it, it, like it'd be like a shadow or an ink blotter yeah. it'll come from some yeah. it'll not be something we can even it'll be so foreign so different to and anything that, that it's almost like beyond our imagination. Yeah, I, I really like that. Some people have critiqued, you know, Star Trek and other sci-fi shows for this like humanoid paradox. Yeah. Why does every alien basically look a humanoid human with makeup but with on? Alien, yeah, well, <laughs> right. because the uh, costume design was not very good when Star Trek. <laughs> right, we didn't first, have sci-fi. Um, sci they didn't have um, special effects rather back then, where you could have like blobs yeah. of clouds moving through the hallways or whatever. Yeah. But the way they do try to explain it in Star Trek, one of my favorite episodes. There's an arms race. There's this message embedded that somebody finds in an archeolo uh, archeological dig somewhere, and all everyone's looking for it. The Federation is trying mm -hmm. to get at it because they think it's like a fun artifact. The Klingons are going after it because they think it's a, it's a weapon. So are the Romulans. Everyone's chasing this thing through space. And when they find it, spoiler alert for a 30-year-old episode of TV, they discover that an old, old, old alien race that died out like millennia before any of us evolved out of the primordial soup knew its race was dying out and scattered its DNA mm -hmm. across the sure, galaxy, sure, sure. causing everybody to evolve in the yeah. same way. You have to come up with some kind of explanation <laughs> along those lines or else it would sure. be... But the, but Grush, yeah. I, I will say he's not claiming like little green men or something that just looks like a, a human in makeup or a small child mm -hmm. in makeup. You know, I think that this what he's been talking about does contemplate other dimensions, non-human corporeal mm -hmm. forms, non-corporeal forms. And he's been very clear again that he has not personally laid eyes on any of this. He was told by a source of, about the reality of some of this stuff. I also want to push back, Robbie. I saw some interesting pushback against some of, your points. some of your points Go from ahead. the last UFO segment. You mentioned that it was in incredible to you that aliens would only have landed in the United States and only in rural areas and mm -hmm. what are the odds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's worth noting that Grush says the first UFO case he was briefed on involved a vehicle downed in Italy in 1933, decidedly not America. The Mussolini government had allegedly kept it in storage to the end of World War II. Pope Pius VII 
back-channeled the existence of the object to the United States, which it obtained in 1944 or 1945. So the argument is— Was that one of the we, sequels to The Da Vinci Code, or is that a real thing that happened? <laughs> they're going to eat you up. I know. I know. Look, look, you have to—I'm just expressing my, my skepticism of, you know, all these— subjects. Or maybe, maybe— there's another dimension, and <laughs> evil Robbie from dimension 19684X crossed here, killed and replaced the real Robbie, and is trying to throw you off the set. I think that's likely. I also love that you're Scully and I'm Mulder in this dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. More rising right after this. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey appeared on Breaking Points. It's a little-known podcast. You've probably never heard of it. Just kidding. Yesterday, he was on there and offered his thoughts on free speech and Twitter. It's a great interview. Let's watch some of it. I have questions about you know, certain things, and I have questions about the long-term aspects of free speech on a corporate-owned platform, no matter who the owner is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but those are solvable. Dorsey also weighed in on Elon Musk's new policies at the company. Let's again hear what he had to say. We were more, you know, Ideally, going for a global appreciation of free speech mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and free expression itself. And Elon um, took on a principle of anything that's um, allowed by law on the platform, which sets up a dynamic where you have countries like India and Turkey, uh, who made many requests to us back in the day um, to take down particular journalist accounts or uh, give contact information um, and remove them from the platform. So I think it's easier to do in the US, but at the same time, you are dependent right now upon a advertising model and the advertisers can do things like boycott uh, mm -hmm. until policies are changed or, or actions are, are taken. And we saw that many, many. The former CEO also talked about a goal that he had before he left the company. My one goal before I left the company was to shift away from this dependency on brand advertising and move to um, different lines of revenue. And Elon has started with that, and I think that will help the cause of, of being a platform for truly free speech. But that said, he can always be compelled. He has one person, he's one single point of failure. And pressure can be put upon him by the United States, by the Department of Defense, by China, by Turkey, um, by India, of course, uh, and it will. And um, this is this is going to be the the, the reality for any uh, centrally controlled um, uh, company or right. or even a protocol that's that's centrally controlled. So the only way to truly have free speech, to truly be censorship resistant, is to work on open protocols. And there are only two at scale that I'm aware of. I really enjoyed what he had to say because yeah, it was a great interview. Uh, kudos to uh, uh, Crystal. Yeah, it was a big get. It's his first it. yeah. his first interview since he left the company. Now, so much of what he had to say uh, explodes the way that both people who have been critics of Elon Musk and people who have been defenders of Elon Musk talk about these issues as focused on the personalities of the people at the top of the company. And so much of what Jack had to say was that these were problems that 
have been ongoing. They're persistent and built into the nature of the medium. The pressure that you're going to get from foreign governments, from the United States government, to have content moderation, it's a feature of the platform. The only recourse, he says, is to build an, uh, uh, open up the platform. He talked about um, the frustrations that he has with Elon Musk choosing to frame the free speech protocols of the site as according to what any given government would allow, which was the substance of a lot of Mehdi Hassan's criticism. And so it's interesting to see Jack, who is in a better position than most to weigh in on the pressures that Elon Musk is under, not blame Elon right. in particular, but to say that these are systemic issues that we need to take on, and that, frankly, there are things that he wanted for the company that still have not come to fruition, uh, even though he has been a long-term supporter uh, of Elon Musk. He also said he learned from the Twitter files uh, that he was not aware, even when he was in charge of the company, the extent of the constant government yeah. communications with Twitter moderators. I found that interesting. That was my sense that he was not totally aware of it because he seems not pleased about it at all in, in, those, um, in those hearings that they've had to do on Capitol Hill, him, Zuckerberg, and a few others. He seems by far the most um, <laughs> over the idea that government <laughs> figures should be, uh, should be telling social media companies what kind of content appears on the site. Um, you know, he's obviously, he, he was, I think, a fan of Tulsi in the past. Mm -hmm. He's a fan of RFK Jr. now. Mm -hmm. So he's clearly coming at some of these questions from the kind of, you know, independent, left, libertarian, you know, whatever it is, uh, a, a, a pro-free speech, um, pro-dissident sources of information, um, skeptical of mainstream narratives, that kind of perspective that was so desperately crushed or attempted to be crushed by what the government was advising the company to do. So I, I found that very interesting. He, he talked about, um, you know, wishing the Twitter files would continue, not being happy. You know, uh, I think he cited a lot of the criticisms you've made of how Elon abruptly shut down the project and also how it can look one-sided based on what they had access to and what was given out. And that's not really, and he said specifically he doesn't think that's the journalist's fault. Yeah, in fact, um, I think we have that clip uh, of Dorsey weighing in on the Twitter files. Let's take a look. Oh, we do. Let's have it. I wish that the, the full corpus of the emails and all the information was released um, so that more journalists and everyone in the world could see everything. Because I think there is some context missing when you mm. when you pick parts. And it's no fault of the reporters necessarily. They had a, a tool and they had to ask questions of the tool. And that tool would give them back fragments of information. Um, and that might lead them to get the other fragment to provide more context. But if if everything was available, um, I, I think we'd have a better picture. Mm. I, I think the company, you know, my, my leadership style in the company was just to trust our, our folks and, and that they were doing the right things. There's a lot of stuff in the Twitter files that, you know, I never saw um, because it, it wasn't at that level. Now, that is pretty close to explicitly the concern that I raised with Matt Taibbi when I interviewed him on my podcast maybe a month or two ago. Um, I got a lot of pushback for pointing out, as a lawyer who does document review, you know, you have to be wary of what you're not getting and not just what you are getting, not because what you are getting isn't newsworthy and worth reporting on. I absolutely believe that they should have and should continue to report on the documents that they still haven't gone through yet, but that you also have to stay away from broader conclusions that aren't actually merited by the documents that you've been given at the time. And what Jack is saying here is that because both only a narrow tranche of documents were provided, 
um, to the journalists. And because only a narrow band of journalists were given access to those documents, it limits the kind of stories that are going to mm -hmm. come out and, in my view, undermines the credibility of the project in a way that underserves the project. It's an important project. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, really articulating a lot of the things that um, that you've raised on the show in his remarks there. I mean, he, he made me wishing that he was still in charge of Twitter. Uh, Elon just looked for a new CEO, and he picked someone that I think actually a lot of conservatives, a lot of people who uh, who like Elon and, and want to see the changes he's articulated, realize on the site, um, are have deep concerns about this person who has World Economic Forum ties, right. who comes from the mainstream media. Um, why not? Why not? I'm not saying, you know, Jack has any interest in the role. He looks like he's he's, he's a happy, he's a happy I, man. I know, he's and look, the, criti the cr criticism of Jack before he left was that he was already kind of checked out and yeah. wasn't a very hands-on CEO, which is something that I think they would own up to. It's worth also noting, though, you mentioned people who are upset with Elon's policies. Some of the latest is that uh, Musk announced a new Twitter policy this week to reduce spam messaging ostensibly. But what he's going to do is allow only verified users to send DMs to accounts that don't follow them. So you can't just have open DMs unless you're verified. And some journalists have pushed back against this saying, this is how I get tips. This is how you know I'm able to get in contact with people in the real world. And that this is a kind of restriction of the exact kind of speech and journalistic enterprise that you uh, had hoped to boost by I mean, buying this platform. You can put your email address in your, in your bio and say, email me with tips. I, I, he's trying to push people to sign up for the site, right? I mean, he's running a business. It's not. Well, that, that is the point <laughs> that I've been making the entire time, that every single decision that all of these people are making, it's about running a business. And it's true of Twitter. It's true of Bud Light. It's true of Target. It's true of everything. It's true of, 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 of um, the defense contractors who have a pride flow in higher DEI, Chick-fil-A, all of them. It's not ideological. It is Procunerary. <laughs> and at the end of the day, that means that a lot of them are going to act the exact same ways because they're well, subject I mean, to the same be, financial incentives. Sure, it can be a mix of both. I mean, he has taken over the site. Um, he, he has so far reduced its value tremendously, according yeah. to um, people who are evaluating it, that it's worth you know, 30 billion less than what he paid for it, um, in part because he, and he brought back a lot of people he thought had been unfairly purged from the site. So he can have these principles and think this is the place it wants to be, but also I'm running a business and I gotta, I'm trying to push people to Right, subscribe. so having a principle in your heart, heart of hearts, right. I don't know how much that means if, in effect, you are going to the right of what Jack Dorsey says he would have done or what he did when he was CEO in terms of standing up to some of these more authoritarian governments. So it'll be interesting to see if Elon weighs in on any of Jack Dorsey's comments. But we'll have more rising for you right after this. model and activist Rose Montoya went topless at a White House Pride event just moments after shaking hands with President Biden. They're, they're now both facing the wrath uh, from conservatives. Radio host Dana Loesch wrote on Twitter, no, this isn't another hookers in blow photo from Hunter's laptop. Oof, yikes. It was the Pride party on the White House lawn two days ago hosted by Joe. They also didn't hang the American flag right, according to code, an issue of great importance that we discussed on yesterday's show. 27-year-old Montoya responded to the backlash in this response video. Let's watch. Conservatives are trying to use the video of me topless at the White House to try to call the community groomers 
etc. And I would just like to say that, first of all, going topless in Washington, D.C. is legal. And I fully support the movement in freeing the nipple because why is my chest now deemed inappropriate or illegal when I show it off? However, before coming out as trans, it was not. So there was a lot of uh, anger about that we didn't play the actual um, clip. I think she made a TikTok video or something. It shows part of President um, uh, Biden. President Biden's. <laughs> I'm a little distracted. <laughs> yeah, Biden President Biden uh, speaking. Um, Jill Biden also spoke, uh -huh. um, talking about how. Oh yeah, there's a there's Dana Lash's tweet about it. Um, yeah, talking about how brave the LGBTQ community is, she gets to shake hands with Joe Biden, and the, the TikTok is a bunch, you know, a bunch of clips from this event. And the last one is, yeah, her un yeah. unzipping her top Look. and uh, covering. Um, <laughs> this feels like a generational issue or, or something. It. Like I, what? No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I think we're going to be on the same page on this one. I love that this was a pride event at the White House. I could give two figs about the flag situation. I fully express, I support everybody's right to go topless, cis or trans, as long, you know, in, the, in localities where they have topless laws where, you know, women can do whatever they mm -hmm. want. I love that. I have no prudishness about it. I fully support it. But at a certain point, you're gonna have to reckon with the reality that outside of the law, there are some spaces where one might expect a certain degree of decorum that has nothing to do with you being trans, has nothing to do with you being a woman, it has nothing to do with anything. It has to do with a simple question of whether or not most Americans are going to think it is a breach of etiquette to go topless on the White House mm -hmm. lawn. Now, I might be an old fuddy-duddy, and I can accept that. Honestly, you, there's, a, <laughs> there's a way in which you could see it as trans-affirming to think that was inappropriate, uh, just as it would have been inappropriate for a <laughs> for cis, cis woman, woman to do that. Yes. Um, I, I, <laughs> yes. And I, 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 don't, I don't know. We're going to hold all women to the same standards of why do It doesn't make you do a groomer. That. It doesn't make, and all of that is ridiculous. But right. here, here's, what, here's what I will say. Like, pride is often sexy and, a, and adult and raunchy and fun. Mm -hmm. I, 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 look, I think that there's sexuality in life, and that means that I personally wouldn't have a problem with kids being exposed to some level at a, at a pride parade. These questions are going to come up. You're going to have to explain mm -hmm. things to your kids. If you live in an urban area and you walk down the street, they're going to hear and see things. And why not at a pride parade? Like, I don't, I don't really care about that, all that. That's to each parent's choice. But the nature, I don't think that we should pretend that the nature of pride isn't raunchy and perhaps not necessarily, like, political and mm -hmm. formal and conservative in the nature that politics is. Now, if you think that politics just should have no more decorum and traditional rules and, um, you know, there should be no dress code in the Congress and people should show up in beach dresses and flip-flops and Bermuda shorts and, you know, you think, you know, everyone should basically dress like John Fetterman and, and, and this kind of traditional conservatism, conservatism is like white male patriotic, uh, 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 
the patri not patriotic, but the pa patriarchy, you mm -hmm. know, all of that stuff. The patriarchy, not patriotic, <laughs> right? the patriarchy. The, the patriarchy. Then I, I, like, I, I get that, and then maybe that's just me. But I do, I don't, I don't think it's the move to say because people objected to me taking my top off right after I shook hands with Joe Biden, that is in and of itself yeah. an anti-trans sentiment. It seems like a very like I do, I poked you in the face, and now you're mad. Yeah. But like I obviously this was. If she didn't think this was going to elicit this kind of reaction, this seems designed to provoke this kind of reaction. Yeah. And to play into um, uh, concerns that people on the right have about that. Just because, why, why at the White House? Why Again, this yeah, is, like, anyone would be like, don't, anyone else like, like taking off their clothes at the White House would be considered odd and inappropriate. Yeah. And would prompt further yeah. questioning. I mean, when Obama was president, he had, what was that kind of music event where there were a lot of hip-hop artists and stuff, and I know that there mm -hmm. was some concern trolling over that. But as far as I'm aware, there was nobody behaving any way that wasn't completely decorous and, and, yeah. and regular. If, 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 if uh, the, Biden or Trump— Who knows what the tan suit in chief was doing, right? <laughs> right? But even if, if Obama or Trump or whomever, yeah. uh, Biden, were to have some event that had— I don't know, some great right-leaning right bluegrass band or a sports team that had a lot of conservative players and someone decided to do a keg stand in the yard, I would similarly say, mm -hmm. drinking is legal. Let's keep it classy, You're allowed guys. to. Keep it classy. But if you're going to get some pushback, yeah. if you start doing body shots on the White House lawn or whatever it is. Yeah. Um also wanted to play this clip from former Speaker Paul Ryan talking about the culture war seemed relevant. Let's watch. Can I get your thoughts on that movement just quickly? I know we have to go, but Republican lawmakers around the country are pushing legislation when it comes to banning books. Um, it could be trans rights, call it anti-woke, however you want to label it. Is that a good approach, a good strategy? You're a football fan. Is that the way you should approach it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a culture war guy. Uh, I think it's really polarizing. Look, I, on some of these issues, I'll side, uh, you know, with the anti-woke crowd. But to me, I'm worried about a debt crisis. I'm worried about, you know, the future of our country and, and China. There are big policy problems that we need to tackle if we want to have a great 21st century for this country. Um, my work at AEI Notre Dame and my Poverty Foundation is all about poverty and upward mobility. You know, what I worry about are the big policy challenges that are going unresolved or made worse by Joe Biden. So that's why I want to win this election so we can actually fix these big policy problems. Yeah. Cultural war politics is good primary election politics. It's very divisive, but it's effective politics. It's effective politics, I'll grant you that. But for me, I'm an old Jack Kemp guy. I believe in inclusive, aspirational politics, solve problems. We got, we got huge problems. Yeah. So, so we what got a debt saying, crisis coming, saying, so we got to get on top of that. No, neither Biden or Trump are good on this issue. So this, both of these people. Yeah. So I just want to share that. It's very interesting. I saw conservative people just denouncing Paul Ryan left and right on Twitter uh, because he doesn't get it from, their, from that perspective. Um, the culture war part of the stuff was the, in, in the thinking of modern conservatives, is the popular part mm -hmm. of what Republicans were offering. They, they don't agree with, you know, he, his, his uh, cutting government um, services stuff. I, I agree with it, but is it good politics is a totally different question. And uh, I, I thought that so encapsulated the difference the differences in the Republican Party from the Paul Ryan era to now, where he's like, oh, I don't want to do the culture yeah, war. I'm, the I'm culture like, war is is where the interest is. My mouth is hanging open. I don't even know how to process. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul Ryan was, you know, 
it felt like enemy number one for so many years, 15 years ago, and he sounds so reasonable. Right. He said the word inclusive. I don't even, like my head but is his spinning. It's been so long since I've heard someone changed. talk like he that. Ne he was never down. That version of the Republican Party was, I mean, it was socially conservative, but, but not to this, yeah. not to, you know, <laughs> caring this much. That's what he's saying. Like, I, I agree with the anti-woke crowd sometimes, but I don't care this much. I care about these policies. That's not where the Republican Party is whatsoever. And that's why Paul Ryan is a pretty irrelevant figure in uh, in the mix. Paul Ryan definitely has a gay friend. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What do you no, mean by that? He talks like someone who, oh. who moves through the world, who has to be accountable. No, because he has to be accountable to the wild things that nobody would say if they ever had to interact with an actual gay person or a black person or whatever. Mm. You know, I, I, and, and again, I don't want to minimize his horrible economic policy because it really is bad. But I do really think these, you know, the the kind of culture war folks, the Ron DeSantis's and the Marjorie Taylor Greens are also aiming to cut Social Security. And in, in what did Marjorie Taylor Greene say when she was on the show? We have a, a spending problem, uh, not a revenue problem. And therefore, I'm willing to cut the social safety net, but not cut the military budget. Yeah, that and, was And not bad. raise taxes on the rich. Gotta I mean, it so, all. so it does feel like actually the same economic policy as Paul Ryan, but they just have a little extra culture war flair added to it. But to they do the emphasize, they emphasize different things, what they prefer to talk sure, about different things. Sure. Yeah. All right, more rising right after this. This was former New Jersey governor and 2024 presidential candidate Chris Christie's response to whether Donald Trump will show up to the 2024 presidential debates. Reasons. One, I'm not afraid of him. And two, it's the truth. Do you think he'll show up you to bet, those early you debates? Bet, you bet he will. His ego will not be able to stop him. Or if he skips the first one, that'll be fine. Let him skip the first one. That'll give me absolute free, free lane. We'll do that once, Anderson. He'll be at the second one. Christie also weighed in on Trump's recent federal indictment. His employees were scared. They always call him his boxes. His boxes. He wants his boxes near him. He flew the boxes up to New Jersey for summer vacation. What is this, like they're a family member? I mean, seriously, I got my boxes with me. And let me ask you a question. What exactly was he doing with them? Did someone remind him he's not the president anymore? You don't need these things anymore. This is vanity run amok, Anderson. Run amok. Ego run amok. And he is now going to put this country through this when we didn't have to go through it. Everyone's blaming the prosecutors. He did it. It's his conduct. So I watched most of the town hall, and I'm always wary of saying that, uh, predicting that what I thought was good politics or good optics or I agreed with is necessarily going to be popular or going to catch fire. I thought Christie did a pretty good job in this town hall. I thought he uh, very eloquently presented the Republican case for dumping Trump, for saying, you know, he conceded that law enforcement has been weaponized against Trump. He said he thought Hillary should have been charged. He said all those things. He, he said, uh, you know, the Russia collusion nonsense, all of that he condemned, but said, look, the, the case against Trump in the classified documents matter is very strong. Bill Barr concedes it's very strong. Everyone being at least 
a little fair, concedes it's pretty strong, and it was totally chosen by Trump himself. He had every opportunity to just give the documents back, as the other political figures did, and then he wouldn't be prosecuted. And you know, why do you, why do you, want, why do you, Republican primary voters, want the guy who like willfully got himself into this position where we have to have sure. this whole, this whole um, circus again? Um, he so that he made that case. Um, the problem is, so far, Republican primary voters have shown. Absolutely no interest in this case. Yeah, I can tell. Whatsoever. Robbie, I can tell from those clips. He's standing there doing the Chris Christie like stand-up hour, like Seinfeld in front of a brick wall, and the audience response is zero engagement. There are no laughs coming from this performance. Even I think there was a chuckle now and then. Though if you can hear an isolated chuckle from the audience, you're not doing well, it. I don't know. Well, I mean, CNN <laughs> picked that audience. For all I know, it's full of uh, I don't know. Did Democrats. they not also pick the <laughs> Donald Trump CNN? Well, maybe audience? after maybe after that happened, they're like, let's make sure there's no cheering for a Republican ever. But again. they obviously no. Maybe they Resistance said, uh, libs love Chris Christie and yeah. want him to be successful. Chris Christie is on MSNBC more than he is Fox News. I think he has a, an MSNBC contract. There, if anything, they are setting him up for a win. So presuming even you know, I think it's safe to. to guess that they, to the extent that they might have rigged the audience, it would be in Chris Christie's favor, a favorable audience, to still not get very much buy-in, I think is a omen of how the broader Republican field is going to react. Here's the thing. He, Chris Christie the has worse though, poll, you know, approval among Republicans than Trump does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the thing is, it's not clear that Chris Christie's goal is to win. It could be that he's in there to take the heat, to, to throw the bombs at Trump, to make the affirmative argument. He knows there's going to be backlash, but he can be kind of like the, the black hole that absorbs all of the backlash from Donald Trump while getting the stuff that needs to be said out there that can be damaging to him. In a similar way that, you know, in the 2020 primary, Elizabeth Warren didn't go very far herself, but she did take out Bloomberg. Or Tulsa Gabbard didn't go very far herself, but mm -hmm. she took out Kamala Harris. Yeah, that's the theory. That's what he suggested. Um, I don't know that that's going to be the case at all. Um, again, Republican primary voters have they stuck with Trump after um, 2018 was a bad uh, result for them. Then Trump was defeated for re-election in 2020. Then January 6th. Then horrific 2022 results, specifically for the Trumpiest, most servile of Trump candidates. Um, you know, here we are. There's been a lot of potential off-ramps for, for Republican voters, and they've never taken them. Are they going to take them now? I have my doubts. Um, if they are going to take them now, Christie is making the case, right, that you should you come to me. I'm a Republican. Now, there will be policy um, issues leveled at him. He is a more—he's still very conservative, but he's, you know, he was a blue state governor, northeasterner. Um, He's uh, he was in law enforcement. He was a you know he's a prosecutor. Um, he whether he kind of temperamentally background wise mm -hmm. kind of jives with where the Republican electorate at, is at, I think is also uh, probably a serious question. So for all those reasons, I, I think he is has utterly no chance of being the guy. But. But look, yeah. I, like him, think that Republican voters would do themselves a lot of good even in advancing their own conservative interests by pivoting from, not necessarily to Christie, but from someone other than Trump. Yeah, and to your point but, about there being all of these controversies to, over the course of the last five years and so many Republicans st staying by Donald Trump 
for the duration, Chris, Christy was asked last week mm -hmm. why the flip-flop. Why did he support Trump all of this time, and why is he coming out so strongly against him now? And he says, turns out I was wrong. I couldn't make him a better candidate, and I couldn't make him a better president. Then uh, uh, he disappointed me. That's what he told Jake Tapper. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that squares. Uh, you know, I, think, I don't know if people are going to see this as anything other than opportunism or his former support of Donald Trump as opportunism. I, I heard the, the guys on Pots of America joking that maybe it was uh, the fact that Donald Trump gave Chris Christie COVID and sent him to the hospital and that this, they, they joked that that was the most literal deathbed conversion <laughs> <laughs> there's ever been. Um, uh, Christy actually said in that town hall that uh, while he was, so he got real sick with COVID, yeah. um, that, uh, that Trump called him while he was in the hospital and he said, and Trump asked him, he said, do you, do you think you got it from me? Are you, are you going to tell people you think you got it from me? And, and Christy says that he said, no, I, I don't know if I, there was five, there were six of us in that room. Five of us got COVID. I don't know who gave it to who. I'm not, I'm not going to make that claim. Uh -huh. Trump says, okay, okay, we'll feel better. And then later he finds out that Trump is telling people that Christy gave him COVID. <laughs> Maybe that really, maybe that really was it. Oh. I, I mean, look, so, so Chris Christie, I think no one really has any expectation that he's going to go very far. And yet, it's also worth noting that he did get a CNN town hall. Nikki Haley got a town hall. Yeah, Donald Trump doing, obviously got a town hall. They're doing town halls. Are we going to get that RFK Jr., Marianne Williamson, dare I say, Cornell West town hall? Certainly, we should. It's, it would be inexcusable not to. I don't know whether they will pull the trigger on that, but <laughs> based on what they're doing, it would be utterly hypocritical to not do that. They, for 100% should. They're treating Republican challengers to Trump who are as long shot, as much a long shot as RFK or Marianne are. Much less. People pulling at 1% or right. less are getting town halls, whereas Marianne's been at 11, RFK Jr.'s been at 20%. Yeah. Come on. Um, you say it's an inexcusable, but that hasn't stopped them in the past. We'll see if there's any degree of public pressure that can make both CNN, other networks, and Elon Musk fulfill their promises to offer their platforms equally across the people in this race. Uh, now, that's all we have on that topic. Tomorrow on Rising, Gallup's Mohammed Yunus will join us here in the Rising studio to discuss very interesting new polling on how Americans feel about transgender issues. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.